I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, loss history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to Episode 5 of Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare Podcast. Today's episode is titled, Peak Guerrilla, the Origins of 20th Century Guerrilla Warfare, 1916-1922. A few housekeeping announcements. Here in the desert southwest, we're experiencing our December monsoons, and it's delightful. And I wanted to announce a new podcast that I'm starting called The Dash, a Stoicism podcast that will premiere in the world on 11 December, 2022. Again, those who wish to get in touch with me with questions, recommendations, criticisms, commentary on this podcast, you can get in touch with me by going to cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. Some listeners have asked, what future episodes do I have in store? So I just wanted to uh, go through a list that I have. I'd like to do some book reviews, like Douglas Porch's Counterinsurgency and Kenneth Pollock's Armies of Sand. I will be going into much further depth about the three guys that we're going to be covering today, which is Michael Collins, Leto Vorbeck, and T.E. Lawrence. We will have episodes, maybe even multiple episodes, such as Lawrence, that will be devoted to them. I'll be covering the, um, the structure of American Special Operations Forces, Western Special Operations Forces. Sometime in the future, we'll do a uh, listener's q and I'll be covering Gray Zone and Hybrid Warfare. I plan on doing a series on partisan resistance in World War II in different geographical areas. And I will be appearing in the next few weeks on Prof. C.J.'s Dangerous History Podcast, and if you'll recall from an earlier podcast, I see the origins of this very podcast, Chasing Ghosts, in 2015 when I did, I think it was five or six episodes with Prof. CJ on the very subject of irregular warfare. And with no further ado, let's get into the body of this podcast, Peak Gorilla. 1916 to 1922. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to be discussing three individuals, and I had mentioned just a bit earlier about who they are. One is the British captain, soon to be major, soon to be colonel, T.E. Lawrence. Maybe some of my listeners have seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, 1962, David Lean, astonishing cinematography, astonishing, astonishing uh, screenplay, just a, a great movie all around. Uh, a historical, as Hollywood tends to take a artistic license with a lot of movies and portrayals of real world and war events historically, just to make the narrative make sense and to compress it into the two or three or four hour time period that it has to do. We'll be discussing Leto Vorbeck, who was a German general who stood in November of 1918 at the conclusion of World War I as the sole German general on the face of the planet who remained undefeated. 
and we'll also be discussing Michael Collins, whom we have entertained several times in this podcast, and episode three was devoted to him. And we'll also be talking about several other things. But what I wanted to do most of all was to show that this is the origin story in the 20th century of modern guerrilla warfare. As I mentioned earlier, guerrilla warfare, irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, all this kind of conflict that is outside the realm of conventional conflict that most of us are familiar, familiar with, this, is, uh, this didn't start in the 20th century, but it really took on a new temper and color in the 20th century with 20th century technology, narrative, narratives that could be exploited in new mass communications mediums and things like that. So our agenda today is we're going to go over what Peak Gorilla is, um, something that I call the principle that I'd like to talk about. We'll talk about those three characters that I just delineated. We're going to talk about irregular force evolution from 1916 to 1922, future past tense, and we'll see where we go from there. So the bottom line up front, I would say that only a careful and qualitative view of history will render a more complete picture of the mechanics of irregular warfare and all of its subcomponents like guerrilla conflict, terrorism, and hybrid warfare. Quantitative and statistical historical means and historiography will render only a certain degree of understanding if it's unlimbered from what I would consider a careful historical study of conflict, both in particular and matching it and comparing and contrasting against other conflicts planet-wide. I'd also like to quote T.E. Lawrence, who is eminently quotable, from Seven Pillars of Wisdom, A Triumph, a book that I enjoyed, but it's rather polemical, it's rather philosophically thick and dense, and at times hard to read, but at times incredibly lyrical. Here's the quote, probably one of my, my favorite quotes of all time. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake up in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. So what is peak guerrilla? I'm highlighting three major irregular warfare practitioners who were among an elite band of merry men who brought levels of organized mayhem and martial brilliance unseen in such a concentration since the dawn of the new 20th century. They weren't all creatures of the Great War, but the conflict certainly propelled them to fame and victory. And I would, I would tell you, too, that two of them were creatures of the Great War directly, and one was indirectly. The one indirectly, of course, is T.E. Lawrence in Ireland, who didn't serve a day in the trenches in World War I. You know, what I want to do here is highlight the key observations that presaged what would be a century, and a century and more now, of warfare matched to contemporary technology that far outstripped the reach of the battlefield and turned the fate of nations. Peak Gorilla was the brilliant and accidental conflagration that birthed most 20th century revolutionary moments, movements across occupying nations. And again, it bears repeating, why pay attention to irregular warfare? Why, when we're entering this new century, as we were, when we've just completed the ignoble exploits of the West in Afghanistan, Iraq, the Horn of Africa, Libya, and other spots 
around the globe, but concentrated mostly in that area. And now we're going to peer and near peer competition and unified land operations and unified naval operations and these kind of things. But I am here to tell you, in hybrid warfare, the gorilla is a perennial error in the quiver, arrow in the quiver of all nations and potential conflict worldwide for the remainder of this century. And here's another thing to consider. Patterns of relationships in Western conflict in the 20th century have provided a forecasting framework for irregular warfare throughout the 20th century and into the next millennium if we pay attention. So I want to discuss something that isn't an outlier, but something that isn't directly related to the three gentlemen that we're going to be discussing today. And that would be this gentleman by the name of Gavrilo Princip, who fired twice in on 28 June 1914, killing both the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife, and presaging all the events that would lead to the cavalcade of calamities that we now call World War I. As a result of these pre-existing agreements and treaties and understandings, that hundred years of peace on the continent since Waterloo in 1815 would fall prey to those two rounds that this young revolutionary fired. And by the way, when you read about Gavrilo Princip and what he did at that time, it was a complete accident that he happened upon the Archduke and his wife in this car they had planned to hit them that morning with several teams, but the, these plans had gone awry because the schedule and the route of the Archduke and his wife were, uh, were put in the hazard, and it just so happened by accident he ran upon them. And then we have the beginning of World War I as a result of that conflagration. The world would never be the same, and neither would warfare. One could say that this is perhaps the biggest black swan event of the 20th century. All the components clicked into place to launch a world on a totalitarian, totalitarian tilt straight into the abyss. T.E. Lawrence, charismatic, eccentric, difficult, deep, philosophical, culturally understanding in a fashion that was way before his time. Really interesting guy. Uh, and I love quoting Lawrence. I love quoting his 21 articles. I love quoting, uh, not only was he a keen observer of martial conflict, he was a keen observer of the winds and paths of history. He was a medievalist at heart, which, of course, I personally think gave him an insight into the mind of the Arab armies that he helped to create, augment, and use to slash against the soft underbelly of the Turks in, in the World War I Middle East and what the British were trying to achieve there. Here's another quote from Lawrence. Do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than that you do it perfectly. It is their war, and you are to help them, not to win it for them. Actually, also, under the very odd conditions of Arabia, your practical work will not be as good as perhaps you think it is. I'd mentioned he was a medievalist. He was also a cartographer, and he was also deeply read. As a matter of fact, it would have been so interesting if 
T.E. Lawrence had been able to talk to J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Isn't it interesting with those abbreviated first names? And get in touch with them and what conversations they could have had. And as I mentioned, his realization under, and deep understanding of medieval Christendom gave him an insight into the Arab mind despite the fact that it wasn't Christendom but Islam. And he was so able to play the Ottoman chessboard at the time. A brief interregnum historically. The Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time were probably the weak sisters and the sick men of Europe who could not really field armies that were as sophisticated as that of the West with the British, the French, all the European allied countries. And starting in 1917, when the Americans under Woodrow Wilson entered the war, they still had severe difficulties. And what the British intended to do in order to probably stymie or stop the stalemate that was happening in the trenches of Western Europe was to open up a new frontier via new campaigns in the Arab countries in order to wrest Turkish, Turkish control and Turkish control of the Mediterranean and other areas like that so that they could open up this new front and possibly make it so that Russia and the Ottoman Empire would get kicked out of the war. It is somewhat out of context for me to go very deeply into the campaigns that Lawrence conducted because what I'm trying to do is provide an overview of Lawrence and his other confreres that I've mentioned before and what they accomplished because I'd like to cover this more in depth in future episodes. As a matter of fact, I, as I've mentioned before, I will probably devote two episodes to a treatment of Lawrence in which we will examine not only his historical significance, not only his tactics, his operations, and his strategic vision and his actions, and what he accomplished in the Middle East, but I think it's a little outside what we're trying to achieve with this particular podcast for me to go into those details. But I do want to say that not only was he a master of the Ottoman chessboard and knew where the weaknesses were, where the probing had to take place, and how to achieve these kind of vital cuts and slashes against the Ottoman soft belly, as it were, at the time, to include, for instance, his seizure of the port at Aqaba. But he developed very interesting ways to achieve these things. One of the things that he did is he perfected flying columns. He perfected the death of a thousand cuts. He perfected the sabotaging and the exploitation of the rail logistics lines of communications that the Turks and the Ottomans used in order to achieve what they were doing. He was also doing something really interesting. He was leveraging combined arms warfare in a hybrid framework. Not only was he exploiting the advantages of British naval supremacy in the area, he was leveraging his own lines of communication that were unique to how Arabs' army fought at the time, and he had the guerrilla calculus of force ratios. The guerrilla calculus of force ratios, as we'll discover in this podcast and future podcasts, is that Gorillas don't need a lot of numbers. 
Let me give you a number that sort of skips ahead in time, several decades as a matter of fact. At its peak during, after the Troubles in 1968, when the British Army and various armed forces and the Royal Ulster Constabulary and others were fighting Michael Collins' successors in the Irish Republican Army in all of its variants, at their peak, the Irish Republican Army and all of its variants, to include the Provost and the new IRA and such, probably had a peak armed trigger man and bomb maker and bomb user strength of approximately 500 at its peak. And by the way, you're going to hear this when I talk about Leto Vorbeck. That force calculus was almost 55,000 troops and police that the British and the Northern Irish organizations were leveraging against these 500 IRA triggermen. Lawrence was able to do that very kind of thing. Lawrence's irregulars, in this case the Arab army that he had under his, uh, his command at the time, were leveraged against a very traditional and conventional Turkish army that needed lines of communication, very long lines of communication, that they had to protect. They could use as much as three-fifths or four-fifths of their total order of battle just to protect rail lines and other means of supply lines and lines of communication that the Turks were using in order to sustain their forces in the desert. Again, Lawrence, and I quote, nine-tenths of tactics are certain and taught in books, but the irrational tenth is like the kingfisher flashing across the pool, and that is the test of generals. It can only be ensured by instinct, sharpened by thought, practicing the stroke so often that at the crisis it is as natural as a reflex. End of quote. And by the way, of course, we would find that that would be the conventional battle drills and battle drill training that is instantiated in most Western land forces. And I think of all three of the gentlemen that we're going to be discussing today, Lawrence probably has the best application when it comes to large land force engagements, engagements across large geographical areas, even though we will find with Leto Vorbeck in German East Africa, he did some of the same, but under different conditions. What we discover is that Lawrence because of his cultural understanding, because of his martial understanding, because of his support for the British from the highest levels at the time, that support would not lend itself after the war was concluded because there would be breaches and there would be contractual obligations that would not be met that would set the entire Middle East asunder as a result of what I would, I can only call it British perfidy, deception, lying, and just not doing the right thing after the conclusion of World War I in the Middle East. Several listeners have written me and asked, well, can you recommend some books that would be um, of, of uh, consequence or give me further reading on these subjects that you're covering? And I do have a list of books for Lawrence. I will do the same thing for Collins, and I will do what little there is for Leto Vorbeck when we conclude with him. Of course, I'd mentioned Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence, and there's also Revolt in the Desert by T.E. Lawrence, which I highly recommend, and then try to find his uh, 21 articles on revolutionary warfare, 
Very short read. Highly recommended. Michael Corda's book, Hero, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia, is outstanding. Uh, Guerrilla Leader, T.E. Lawrence and the Arab Revolt by James J. Snyder. Terrific book, especially the way it covers the military aspects of Lawrence on campaign. And one of my favorite books that's come out, I'm something of a Lawrence book collector. I've got a, a fair library of them. Lawrence in Arabia by Scott Anderson, subtitled War, Deceit, Imperial Folly, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. He does a really terrific job of covering not only the campaigns that Lawrence conducted during the conduct of World War I, but following on and the way Lawrence, and I can only conclude it this way, Lawrence was betrayed by the British, the British Army, the British Diplomatic Corps, the British Colonial uh, Office, all of them, to make the mess that we all see as the modern Middle East. As a matter of fact, I, I enjoy Scott Anderson so much, I wanted to uh, quote a paragraph he has in his book that really sums this up. And he says, quote, Everything T.E. Lawrence had fought for, this is after the war, quote, everything T.E. Lawrence had fought for, schemed for, arguably betrayed his country for, turned to ashes in a single five-minute conversation between the prime ministers of Great Britain and France. In London, on the morning of December 1st, 1918, remember the war ended November 11th, quote, David Lloyd George took aside a visiting Georges Clemenceau, and bluntly outlined just what Britain wanted in the Middle East, Iraq and Palestine. In tacit exchange, although Lloyd George would always deny it, France would have free reign in Syria. It was a proposed solution to the spoils of war contest that had strained British and French relations ever since they had cast their covetous eyes toward the Middle East. And that had now taken on great urgency. With the Great War finally over and the Paris Peace Conference about to begin, it was vital that Britain and France present a unified front against the American President Woodrow Wilson. With his high-minded talk of a peace without victory and the rights of oppressed peoples to self-determination, faced with this imminent American threat, Clemenceau quickly acceded to Lloyd George's proposal. End of quote. Again, the perfidy, the lying, the just, just the the bad manners and bad way in which the Middle East was taken advantage of after the conclusion of World War set into place and set the stage for everything that we would experience over the next hundred years, and I don't think in the next hundred years from now it's going to get any better in the Middle East. As I mentioned, I'll be talking about Lawrence more in the future and devoting entire episodes to him. Let's move on to uh, German General Paul von Leto Vorbeck and what I consider his really extraordinary efforts in German East Africa. It's a very interesting story. Leto Vorbeck wasn't new to Africa. He had been down the, in the... Uh, the German colonies from 1904 to 1908, where they were trying to put down the Hottentot and Herrera rebellions. And it was a black mark on German arms, as far as I'm concerned, and how they behaved during that time with concentration camps and slaughter and things like that. What we have is that at the Battle of Tanga, 
this was the opening, fought on the night of November 3rd, 1914. It's his most famous battle of the first two years. Despite being outnumbered by more than eight to one, Leto repelled a British Indian amphibious assault with devastating effect. Let's keep in mind that he had approximately 230, I think it was 230 German officers and about 2,500 Askari, which were the black troops and NCOs that he would use for the lion's share of his battle against the British and Allied forces for the next four years. Those numbers would peak at around uh, 10,000, 11,000 against, believe it or not, a peak of 500,000, a half million, and approximately, if I recall, over those four years, 130 Allied and British generals of one type or another, to include Smoots from South Africa, who he would be able to delay, be victorious against, and not be defeated, as I had mentioned earlier, after November 11th, he becomes the only German general on the face of planet Earth who is undefeated by the Allies. Leto essentially fought a war during this entire time that was unconventional and irregular. He had tremendous admiration for his Askari soldiers, and they were fanatically loyal to him. There's an interesting story of late that emerged where some of the Askaris in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even the 80s were, were long retired from that service. And the Germans had offered up some kind of either bounty or retirement remuneration for them if they could prove they were members of the Askari. So Germans, being Germans, came up with an interesting way to discover whether those who claimed to be retirees from his Askaris were who they claimed they were, and if they could perform the order of arms that Leto Vorbeck drilled them in at the time, they would receive a pension, so they would hand them a broomstick, and they would ask them to do the order of arms out of the manual that the Germans used during World War I. If they could achieve those with a plum, then they would get their pension. Moving back. Uh, one luxury he permitted himself was a bicycle. I mean, he often led marches on this and often performed his own patrols. And, you know, another thing that's interesting about the East African War as opposed to the Western Front and as opposed to earlier talking about Lawrence is chivalry. Because from the beginning, Leto adopted the this totally unprecedented policy of freeing any European prisoners he took, even officers if they gave their word of honor not to fight against Germany again. In early 1916, the Allied command put South African general, leader, Field Marshal Jan Christian Smuts, the former Boer War general, in the field to beat the <laughs> indefatigable Leto. To defeat the Germans, Smuts tried to surround Leto, or to force him to fight a decisive battle. This, uh, I, I, also, I, I often think that it was the conceit of Smoots that he was fighting on the Western Front on the continent and that he didn't realize that maneuver warfare was a thing in Africa. He brought with him 45,000 fresh South African soldiers. And remember, South African soldiers, not Indian soldiers, who were in tremendous numbers during both World War I and World War II. This would be subcontinental Indian soldiers and British forces. These South African soldiers were used to fighting in the bush and fighting in the bush war. 
and weren't brand new recruits from the Western Front who had no idea of how to conduct themselves in this terrain. Uh, many of these would become casualties through disease and otherwise. And Leto Vorbeck kept on winning his battles and Smoots kept on losing his. And of course, Smoots would call on Leto Vorbeck to surrender. He would refuse. And one thing that's really amazingly interesting about this is that Leto Vorbeck, during this entire four years, he is not getting sucker or logistics or even command instructions for the most part, except in very itinerant fashion from the German high command on the continent. They're sort of, I wouldn't say they're ignoring him. I would say that they simply don't have the means to communicate in an effective and consistent fashion with this far-flung German colony at the bottom of the continent of Africa. Campaign after campaign, Leto Vorbeck is running circles around the British and their allies. The last big battle of the campaign was at Mahiva in October 1917. And again, the British were badly bloodied. They suffered more than 50% casualties. I think it was uh, 2,700 out of 4,900. 95 members of Leto's army were reported killed in the encounter. And his army had been reduced to less than 1,000 men, so he withdrew. Remember, he started with 2,500 Ascari. He eventually peaked at approximately 10 to 11,000. Hard to pin the number. Now, in October 1917, a little over a year from the cessation of all hostilities in November 1918 and the conclusion of World War I, he's down to probably 1,000. As a result of being down to this, his offensive operations come to a standstill, and Leto Vorbeck is forced to try to keep his command in survival mode and to keep them intact and not surrender. This, of course, kept him on the move. So in December 1917, he launched a series of hard marches into Mozambique, and he managed to rout the Portuguese forces that were stationed there. Leto's army lived off the land and requisitioned war supplies from this ample Portuguese supply depot that he happened to run across after he had defeated them. And then finally, in the fall of 1918, Leto invaded Rhodesia, and on November 13th, he captured the town of Kusama, one of the only occasions on which a German commander occupied British territory during the war. It was then, for instance, from a British POW, that Leto Vorbeck learned that the armistice had been signed two days earlier, ending the war. So, Leto had good stocks of cattle and ammunition. He had a regular influx of Ascaris to maintain an army. He was in no danger of being surrounded or defeated. He could have continued the war indefinitely, and that was his first impulse, but he did not do so because he was an incredibly honorable man. And in that case, since he was a German general, he would honor the armistice, and he did so on November 23rd. So technically speaking, he did not surrender, but merely disbanded his troops and put himself at the disposal of the British commander. So he ends his campaign, and he ends the war with 155 Europeans and approximately 3,000 Ascaris. 
Post-war, he returned to Germany in 1919. He retired in 1920. Apparently, he entered politics, and he served 10 years in the Reichstag in Germany's parliament. He opposed the National Socialist. When the Nazis offered him an ambassadorial post, he refused. After the German defeat and collapse of World War II, he lived in poverty. And believe it or not, Smoots, down in Johannesburg, who always had profound respect and admiration for Vorbeck and was determined to give him help, he worked out an arrangement whereby Leto Vorbeck received a pension from the victors. How's that for irony? He continued to receive this pension until his death on March 9th, 1964. And as Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck, general, would say, to gain all, we must risk all, end of quote. This man, amazing. The guerrilla calculus of force ratios, uh, leveraging mobile warfare in the very complex African terrain, not only against British and Indian and allied forces and Portuguese forces that didn't always live there because he hadn't always lived there, but even against the redoubtable and, you know, turf-centric South Africans who knew the area, he was able to defeat them in detail and defeat them in the larger framework and manage to best all of these forces arrayed against him. I, I find him historically an anomaly, astonishing for the 20th century and what he was able to achieve. And when you look at some of these allied numbers, where the allied numbers can range from 300,000 to 500 to 550,000 that were arrayed against less than 10,000 shoots troopa, what would have happened in a counterfactual if those half million troops had been on the Western Front, on the Continental Front, or maybe assisting T.E. Lawrence in his investment of the Ottoman Empire and the Turkish uh, troops? Up in that area, could it have curtailed the length of World War One as a result of what Leto Vorbeck was doing? It's unknown. It's fair speculation, but it's simply extraordinary to look at this. Now, as far as books on Leto Vorbeck, very hard to come across. Leto Vorbeck wrote his own book called My Reminiscences of East Africa. Uh, I think that Byron Farwell did a book on him. I think that there was one by Hoyt that was done. And, of course, there was one that was done by Meinertshagen, who was a curious individual in his own right, who was a British officer, but it had been shown after Meinertshagen's death that the man was a serial liar in everything that he did. So I would say that any correspondence or books that he wrote or even talked about this campaign are to be looked on with suspicion. And speaking of Byron Farwell, I do want to quote from his book where he said something really interesting, That, and this is page 353. Article 17 of the armistice did not require his surrender, but simply evacuation of all German forces operating in East Africa, end of quote. Byron Farwell's book is called The Great War in Africa. I recommend it. So in conclusion, I think that Leto Vorbeck provided the exemplar for conducting a successful guerrilla conflict against superior numbers and logistics and still winning. And he had no logistical tale whatsoever or supplemental information or lines of communication from Germany itself during the conduct of his four years of campaigning. 
Michael Collins. Neil Jordan did a film called Michael Collins. Again, like I said about Lawrence of Arabia earlier, the 1962 David Lean film, Jordan takes artistic license with history. He uh, tries to narrow the narrative. He tries to make it much more heroic than it may have been. But I do think he captured the essence of not only the military genius of Michael Collins, but some of the more rascally aspects of him and his personality. To quote Collins, that valiant effort and the martyrdoms that followed it finally awoke the sleeping spirit of Ireland. In this case, Collins is referring to the 1916 failed rising by the Irish that was put down by the British, but which I think, and you can go back to episode. So, you know, here we have this checkmate that I talked to in much more detail in episode three concerning British exhaustion, World War I, what it had wrought on the British island itself and the empire, the impact of the Jolly and Wallybog massacre, uh, Churchill's and Ritzar speech, which I call your attention to again if you get a chance to look that up and read it, probably his greatest speech that he ever made in his life. I'd like to quote A.T.Q. Stewart, quote, yet even the most grotesque subversions of history cannot outdistance the true facts of the story of a country boy who became the first urban guerrilla, laid the foundations of a state, and then negotiated its independence, was chairman of its provisional government, then commander-in-chief of its armed forces when it was plunged into civil war, all of this before dying at the hands of his fellow Republicans at the age of 31. Look, Michael Collins achieved the end of this 800-year occupation and domination of Ireland by the UK uh, through martial imagination, his adroit use of narrative and striking at the core enemy weaknesses both on and off the battlefield. I'd like to remind, it's sort of me stamping my foot when I was in the military and teaching, that there are three pillars to a successful insurgency. You must capture the narrative. You must dominate the narrative. You must be able to articulate, enunciate, and make common the appreciation of perceived and real grievances. And Collins achieved this. You have to wrest legitimacy from the government that's trying to defeat you or from the governments that are trying to defeat you and instantiate that legitimacy in your own movement in your own movement as an insurgency so that one has legitimacy after cessation of hostilities and the victory to continue on in whatever form of governance is adopted at the time. So what books would I recommend? I have an entire library devoted to Michael Collins and the IRA and the IRB and the Irish Revolution because, as I've mentioned before in a previous podcast, I find it really interesting that here is an English-language insurgency, one of the only that I'm aware of, only ones I know of, in which all this primary and secondary source documentation is available to amateur historians like myself who are examining these things. And so I have a considerable library. I want to take um, one quick side note here when it comes to reading, and that would be this. If you haven't read Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book, highly recommend it. I know it seems curious to recommend a book on reading a book, and then I want you to read that book to learn. But there's this phenomenon 
that's called syntopical reading. And what syntopical reading is, is this, is no matter what your interest is, but let's stick to the interest that we have today, which is Michael Collins, the IRA, and the history of the Irish Rebellion. If you read three to five of those books, you read them with purpose, you read them intensely, you read them actively, you start to aggregate and accumulate sort of like a, a baseline and a framework of understanding in which with active questioning and interrogation of books, you can arrive at conclusions to do what I think is the very best goal that I have in history, is I want to get the single most accurate picture of what happened. So, How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. I'm going to recommend four books on the Irish Rebellion. Guerrilla Days in Ireland, A Personal Account of the Anglo-Irish War by Tom Barry. Bloody Sunday by James Gleeson. How Michael Collins Assassinated Britain's Secret Service in Dublin on November 21st, 1920. In episode three, I go into some detail about that very episode. Michael Collins by Tim Pat Coogan. You will find that Tim Pat Coogan is quite voluminous in his writing. Very prolific. So uh, take a look at his entire oeuvre, as it were. He's got a lot of stuff available. And then Michael Collins and the Anglo-Irish War by J.B.E. Hittel, Britain's Counterinsurgency Failure. So I could recommend more books, but I'm going to try to limit myself because not only do I not want to bankrupt my listeners, but I would take all the time recommending books, and I don't want to do that. In the future, when I do my most likely multiple podcast series on Michael Collins, I'll have more books to recommend. You can always write me at cgpodcast at pm.me if you'd like any further recommendations. So that concludes our sort of like thumbnail sketch and overview of who I consider to be three of the luminaries who informed the formation of Pete Gorilla at the beginning of the 20th century. That's not to say that these are the sole practitioners. I just wanted to highlight them among dozens who were around at the time. Irregular Force Evolution, 1916 to 1922. I'd, I'd like to draw out some quick conclusions and tidbits for each of them, respectively. We've got Lawrence in the Middle East. Um, his coalition support to indigenous guerrillas and robust logistical tales. He was able to compromise those logistical tales on the part of the Turks with very few troops, comparatively speaking. He actually actively leveraged the Arab mindset, the indigenous mindset, those people who knew the turf intimately because they had lived there for centuries, if not millennia. Uh, he adapted that partisan force to advantage. Uh, he made what I would say is linear lines on non-linear maps. What I mean by that is that there's these railroad lines, and the assumption by the Turks with the railroad lines is that if they ran armored trains on them and patrolled the tracks and such, they would be able to control their lines of communication. They could not because perpendicular to these tracks were tracks, T-R-A-C-T-S, tracks of desert millions of square miles that they couldn't possibly patrol. He took full advantage of that. German East Africa, Leto Vorbeck, some snapshot conclusions. 
the guerrilla force calculus in history. I've mentioned what it was with the IRA, where they would have maybe 500 uh, trigger pullers, bomb makers, and bomb deployment modalities. And these were arrayed against 50 to 55,000 troops at the time. Uh, when we look at Germany, East Africa, we find that with a maximum complement of 10 to 11,000 Ascari troops under Leto Vorbeck's European officers, not only did he have an estimated 130 to 140 general officers arrayed against him, but troop concentrations that were as high as 500,000 arrayed against him in Germany, East Africa, in that campaign. He had independent action because he was not receiving any kind of instructions in detail for tactical and operational behavior that he would conduct in his martial enterprise in Germany, East Africa. He had focused campaigns, and he was also winning the battle for hearts and minds because his Ascari were force multipliers because he was fighting with black troops. Ireland with Collins. His victory was built on defeat in two ways. The proximate defeat of 1916 with the Easter Rising, which was brutally crushed by the British occupation forces. But in the larger strategic and grand strategic defeat of 800 years of occupation that had never managed to put out the embers, if not the emerging fire of a more than majoritarian number of the Irish people who wanted the British noose and reins from around their body politic. I had mentioned the role of narrative and legitimacy. And also, I'm going to discuss this in podcasts in the future, but it's what I call grievance engines. It's what I call the politics of indignation. When you look at American and allied behavior in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, the Horn of Africa, they've made a living generating grievance engines and generating indignation from small aspects to larger aspects, but all of it has done nothing but steal the spine of resistance within these countries. And of course, I always like to mention this about Collins, timing, timing, timing. As I mentioned in episode three, the timing of what appeared to be local disparate events with global disparate events, and my conclusion that, like the butterfly effect, and like what I have made the notion of anti-fragility in insurgency and why they have it in considerable spades compared to counterinsurgencies, Michael Collins was a master of using this timing and leveraging it to his advantage and the advantage of Irish revolution, Irish revolution and Irish success in taking that saddle off of their backs. I'd like to conclude with a quote from My Reminiscence of East Africa by Leto Vorbeck, which I mentioned earlier as a book recommendation. It's a quote, In cold truth, our small band, which at the most comp comprised some 300 Europeans and about 11,000 Ascari, had occupied a very superior enemy force for the whole war. According to what English officers told me, 137 generals had been in the field, and in all, about 300,000 men had been employed against us. The enemy's losses in dead would not be put too high at 60,000, for an English press notice stated that about 20,000 Europeans and Indians alone had died or been killed, and to that must be added the large number of black soldiers who fell. 
The enemy had left 140,000 horses and mules behind in the battle area. Yet in spite of the enormously superior numbers at the disposal of the enemy, our small force, the rifle strength of which was only about 1,400 at the time of the armistice, had remained in the field always ready for action and possessed of the highest determination. I believe it was the transparency of our aims, the love of our fatherland, the strong sense of duty and the spirit of self-sacrifice which animated each of our few Europeans and communicated themselves consciously or unconsciously to our brave black soldiers that gave our operations the impetus which they possessed to the end. End of quote. So again, I recommend everybody do their own research, find out what you can about this. If you think that the three luminaries who I chose to exemplify what I consider the beginning of the modern guerrilla movement in the 20th century, let me know. My email is again at cgpodcast at pm.me. And a brief reminder, effective December 11th, I am starting a new podcast on the alternate fortnight, which means I try to put these out every two weeks. So that weekend, I'm not putting out this podcast, I will be publishing The Dash, a Stoicism podcast, on December 11th when it will be released to the world. So with that, I thank you for your listenership. I thank you for your time. I hope you found this useful. And this is Bill, out.